Hi, and welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. Today, I have the extreme privilege of chatting with the brilliant and talented Canadian author, Catherine McKenzie. Catherine was a hugely successful litigation lawyer in Montreal who made what I consider to be a hugely brave decision to step away from the practice of law and continue to pursue her passion as a writer. Catherine's 11th book is entitled Six Weeks to Live, and it's just been released. It is captivating. It's a psychological suspense novel about a woman diagnosed with cancer who sets out to discover if someone actually tried to poison her before her time is up. I cannot wait for you to meet Catherine. Here she is. I am so very excited to welcome Catherine McKenzie. Catherine is an incredible author, and I can say that because at this very moment, I am 66 pages away from the end of her brand new book, funnily called Six Weeks to Live, 66 pages away from finishing Six Weeks to Live. Coincidence? Love. Hmm. <laughs> so I just want to have a chat, Catherine, like as we were talking about before we started to record this, like just as if we were sitting in some beautiful cafe in Montreal and having some delicious coffee. That'd be nice. <laughs> Catherine, am I right when I say you got into law because you loved watching LA Law as a kid? <laughs> I definitely did watch LA Law and other shows like that as a kid. I think I got, I don't know, I honestly can't say exactly why I said as a kid that I wanted to be a lawyer, um, but I did from a very early age. And I think it was a combination of, you know, probably TV shows like that. And I was an argumentative little kid and being told you should be a lawyer and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I did, you know, from early on want to be a lawyer. Fabulous. And litigation. So of all the types of law you could have practiced, I guess argumentative means you're <laughs> going to go into criminal or you're going to go into litigation, I guess, being on your feet in a courtroom. Well, I just, for me, being a lawyer means being in court. Um, it was the part that was the most interesting. I, there's lots of other parts of the job that I liked, but if it didn't lead to that possibility, it it wasn't something that I wanted to do. I hear you. I was married to a litigation lawyer for 13 years, and the courtroom was the adrenaline. It was the buzz. It was the payoff for all of the nights in the library and the weekends and the crazy hours. Definitely. How, you practiced You practiced law for 20 years before you quit, Catherine? Yep. And you quit to become an author. Well, I didn't quit to become an author. You already were. I already was an author, yeah. I mean, I did... Uh, I was called to the bar in 2000, and I wrote my first book in 2006, and then it was published in 2010. So for 10, and I quit in August 2020. So it, for 10 years, I was publishing and practicing law at the same time. And for many years before that, I was writing and and practicing law at the same time. So um, I think it's why I say I'm now writing full-time, because I was doing, you know, I had two jobs when I didn't really need two jobs, but <laughs> I did have two No, especially a litigator at, 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 at litigator in Montreal and in a well-renowned litigator based on what I've 
read about some of the, the amazing things you did when you were practicing. Right. There's not a lot of time to even eat or sleep as a litigator, based on my casual observ- observations of my husband, who was always at the office. Right. I don't know how you handled it. How did you handle it? I mean, I think being a good later litigator requires being very organized and efficient. And um, I think you also make time for the things that you love. So for sure, I sacrificed other things um, to spend the amount of time that I did writing. You know, I wrote on vacations. I wrote on airplanes. I wrote on weekends. So, um, you know, I think I found a way to make it work, obviously. Uh, I also don't have kids. Uh, don't know if I would have found a way to make it work if I also <laughs> had children. Um so, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it was a, it was a question of building in lots of time around my writing because obviously my litigation job came first and it was a much more unpredictable yeah. job in terms of when things might get busy or. I find it completely fascinating because I have also chatted on Breaking Brave with Robert Rotenberg, lawyer and writer. The idea that practicing law, especially if you're standing in a courtroom, because Robert Rotenberg is a criminal lawyer, and writing helps you. In other words, one helps the other. They they go hand in hand to some degree because of the thread, which is being the storyteller. Could could we chat about that for a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. I mean, you know, I was actually on a panel at a book conference a couple of years ago. It was all practicing lawyers and, who were writers. Um, wow. There was like six of us. And then I think there's many, 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 many writers who went to law school or practice law. And it, and a friend of mine who is a former lawyer and a writer, um, when she was still practicing and thinking of becoming a writer, went to a conference in Vermont. And there were just four lawyers who wanted to be writers. And there were 200 people at this conference. So Who knew? It, who knew? <laughs> It's obviously, but I mean, yeah, I think it's definitely the storytelling aspect is is a large part of it. So um, particularly in litigation, again, you are telling stories. I mean, they're circumscribed by facts, or they should be, but... (laughs) They're supposed to be. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, and and it is, despite, you know, every profession has a few bad apples and then everybody, but most people are constrained by the facts. Um, And, you know, what each, each piece of litigation starts with a written document that sets out the facts and tells the story. And and that is how you start to persuade a court um, or a jury if you're in front of a jury. So I, I do think they're intertwined. I think in other ways too, you know, people who are lawyers tend to be type A personalities. They tend to be people who finish things they start, who uh, are willing to take a certain amount of risk. So, you know, there's lots, a lot of people talk about writing a book there's a subset of those people who actually finish the book. And then there's a subset of those people who are like, okay, I'm going to try and get this published. And I think a lot of skills that um, people who are lawyers have also translate in that less obvious way into, well, okay, I've, I've done this whole thing. I'm not going to put it in a drawer. I'm going to see if somebody else wants to, you know, and pay me money for it. <laughs> Absolutely. And you also run, or you you have run a couple of marathons, and you ski and you play tennis. Yeah, so the marathons, I, I don't think I've run a marathon since I started writing, and also since my knees are older. Um, uh-huh. But but I do still run, but I I don't run that kind of. I mean, training for a marathon is a full time job. Also, I did two of them close together because I didn't finish the first one. 
And so then I was like, I am not wasting all this training. And I found another one a couple of months later and, and, and completed that one. So, but in that four or five month period, I really did feel like all I was doing was working and running and that was it. Yeah. But yeah, I do, I do run and, and I've recently in the last couple of years really gotten into tennis. Um, I like to be able to move and be physically active. And I think it's important for health, but also just for mental health. So particularly during the pandemic. Absolutely. And just brain activity. I mean, yeah. just to keep your blood flowing and, and thinking about all kinds of new things. I found a quote from you that said that you liken writers to magpies. Yes. You were quoted as authors and writers are like magpies. They steal little pieces of people's lives. Yeah. And I had this vision of you weaving a nest with little memories and little little snippets of things that was going on for you. And I thought, that's a beautiful analogy. Could we use that as maybe jumping now to six weeks to live? And if you're able and willing to talk about how closely this was aligned with your family experience with your brother-in-law's mother of being diagnosed with a with a brain tumor and how that mm-hmm. started the, the progression or the start and through line for this book. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously that's the only point of connection between yes, <laughs> that exactly. story and, and my book. But but yes, um, you know, a family member, an extended family member a couple years ago did receive this sort of very sudden and shocking diagnosis. Um, and, um, you know, I observed sort of how she was handling it with grace. And, and, and I think part of being a writer is you put yourself in other people's shoes. And so I, I think it started with just asking myself what I would do in the same circumstance. You know, um, she it was very important to her to go through her things and to give certain things that were important mm-hmm. to her to family members. And I don't care about things. Personally, I'll be like, I'm just going to the beach. <laughs> you know, if you want to come say goodbye, I'll be over here. Yeah, um, exactly. I want to take a trip. I want to go somewhere. Or something. Yeah, I, I just, but everybody, that's their own personal right. experience. And and I actually asked that question um, on social media a couple of weeks ago. And one of the more interesting responses was that a lot of people said that they would write letters um, to people, which is something that never even occurred to me. Um, wow. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So anyway, th- this happened and, and um, you know, it was kind of on my mind of, you know, what would you do if you were diagnosed with six weeks to live? And and at some point, the idea popped into my head, like, I think because it was, when you get a sudden diagnosis, you're sort of like, well, what was missed? You know, how did yeah. it happen yeah. that I was fine and now I'm gone? A- in, and now know, I've got six weeks. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, how is that possible? And um, because I write thrillers and suspense, then, then you know, obviously I started thinking about a sort of malevolent reason for why that might be. And um, so I had this sort of nascent idea of kind of an updated DOA, you know, that the movie, there was a remake in the 80s, but the original movie is from um, the late 50s. And so I had this very nascent idea of a woman finds out that she has six weeks to live, but also that she might have been poisoned a year earlier and and she tries to discover who tried to kill her before she dies. And I had to pitch book ideas to my new editor. And I had one that I had been working on more and was much more developed. And I had to, as close as I get to an outline for it. And then I had this sort of literally three sentences. And I knew, I just was like, oh, I, I don't, because I wasn't even sure I, I could write this book, honestly. 
given that it did have this attachment to reality. And yeah. I'm like, well, we'll just see. I'll send them off and, and we'll see. And of course, she came back and she said, you know, that one of her authors had actually pitched a very similar idea already that she'd approved to the first idea I pitched to her, but she liked the second idea. And so then I was kind of racked with guilt. You know, am I really going to write this or not? Um, And I decided to, I mean, the book is dedicated to her. And, um, you know, I did tell my sister and my brother-in-law about it. And, you know, it's with love for her. Of course. Um, Yeah. That's a great tribute. And a tremendous story. And and did they participate? Did your sister and brother-in-law participate in any way by, should they read the final manuscript before it goes off? Or, or did they just say, yeah, yeah, we love you, we trust you, and that's a lovely tribute to our mom? Yeah, that was my brother-in-law's reaction. My sister actually reads everything that I write. Oh, um, neat. So she works for me in my author business. And one of the things that she does is she's sort of my first reader and uh, it was a it was a tough read for her, and and normally Imagine. I have her read my books several times, but this time I only had to read it once. So yeah, it would have been painful for her, absolutely bringing it all back. Even though, I mean, as as we've talked about, there's very 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 little similarity to what actually took place in your family. It was just that little gem of an idea. Yeah, that, that little started. gem, of, that little idea, exactly. And, and um, I mean, I think, you know, to come back to the magpies idea, that that is sort of the guilt I think that writers have a little bit is, is because you do feel like you're stealing little pieces of dialogue or personality traits or, uh, or at least that's how I feel sometimes, uh, you know, not usually from close family, but just from people around you. Or I might read something in the newspaper that tweaks a book idea and it goes off in, in my own direction. I think it also means that sometimes as a writer, you're kind of hovering over conversations or situations as opposed to participating in them. Right. You know, thinking about like, oh, how would I write this? Or, oh, I really need to, I should pay, t- I, I need to pay attention to this, but not because I'm participating, but because I'm sort of mentally taking notes about this bizarre conversation or just the way people interact or the way, you know, so um, sometimes have to force yourself to be present. But I, but I love that. And I worked for a creative director because I came out of the advertising business here in Toronto and I worked for a creative director, Terry O'Malley, who was my, you know, he was a God to me. Um, I was a kid, like literally 20 years old, starting out in the business. And he used to the big, big, big account we had was McDonald's. And he used to go to McDonald's on Saturday morning, early, 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 and have his cup of coffee and just watch. Yeah. And that's where the greatest television spots came from. The one where the little girl gets the change in her hand for the first time and is able, or is, you know, mom, dad is saying, go on up, you can do this, you can make your order and pay for it yourself actually unfolded one breakfast morning on a Saturday morning while he was sitting there just just taking in the world as sort of through his own creative filter, which is seemingly sounding very similar to the, the way that you do it. It's a needed type of, I don't know, creative stimulus, if you will. I think so. I think it's important for creative people to live in the world in which they live for many reasons. But I just think it's important to sort of be of your time. So, yeah. you know, to read books, to watch TV, to see movies, to listen to contemporary music, all of that stuff to just be present and to be out in the world, which, you know, a lot of people are having trouble writing and stuff in the pandemic. And and I'm sure part of it is just, is that, is this your social interactions and and physical interactions have been reduced. And so the stimuli that you collect just through everyday life 
I never um, thought of that. That, of course, you know, yeah, here I am talking about Terry O'Malley going to a McDonald's and having a coffee and getting inspiration. Well, we can't do that. I mean, in Quebec where right. you are and in Ontario where I am, it's been hell. Yeah, it's been <laughs> it's been a, a crazy year, definitely. And, it, you know, it's, it's weird, too, because even the pandemic had phases. Like, when I think back to last summer when things were not normal, but they were way more normal than they are yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. And one hopes will be again. Um, we hope. Soon. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you have a turn back moment when you were making your decision to say, I'm going to leave law, I'm going to leave my law firm, IMK, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue my writing as a full-time career. Was there a turn back moment? Were you scared? Uh, I was nervous. It was a big decision. It was something I had been thinking of off and on for a couple of years. So... It wasn't like I hadn't thought about it. It wasn't a spur of the moment decision either. It's something that, you know, when I even when I came to that decision, I talked it through with my husband. I, 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 I litigated it for myself, I guess. <laughs> but you know, I I started working at the firm when I was twenty three, just after my second year of law school, and I was forty six. So I literally had spent half my life in one job doing basically the same thing, right? And. I, you know, I was looking ahead at to the next 20 years and sort of asking myself, is this what I still wanted to be doing? And I, I had been saying for several years, a, a lot of really interesting statistic in Quebec anyway, that the average age of retirement for male lawyers is in the 70s. Mm. And the average age of retirement for female lawyers is in their 50s. So there's lots of things driving that, obviously, women leaving earlier for family obligations, women going on to the bench. There's lots of things, but it's still a huge age gap. Yeah. And I remember thinking like, who are these dudes who are still practicing law in their 70s and why, you know? Um, And um, and I just, I knew I didn't want that to be me. Yeah. I just knew that I just didn't see myself still putting myself through uh, the hours and the stress when I was, that far along in my life, you know, um, and and certainly not having kids, you know, and, and having two successful careers, like I had a level of financial freedom mm-hmm. that a lot of people wouldn't have at my age. Mm-hmm. So the risk was, I mean, the risk is, you know, you leave that profession. I could go back, but not in the same way. Yeah. Um, so that was definitely a risk, but I had a, a lot of less other barriers than a lot of people would have in a similar situation. I understand. And and how many books had been published when you said that's it? I'm going to now leave law and focus on this full time. So how how many? I mean, ten. Yeah, ten. So that gives you a pretty good level of confidence around this could work. It already is. Well, I mean, you'd think so, but <laughs> um, you know, the arts are 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 a lot less. Uh, Predictable. Yeah. I always there's always a French word that I use, which is aléatoire, which is doesn't have a, a perfect translation into into English. But it, it, the yeah, the arts are a lot less predictable than something like the law. Like I had a, a a new deal for two more books, but I had to make the decision, saying to myself, even if I never got to publish another book again, would I still be okay making this decision? And th- that was the perspective that I had to take it from, because there are no guarantees in publishing. So in life, but but in particular in publishing. Of course. So, you know, I, I, I want to keep writing. I hope I get to keep writing. Um, I have no reason to think I won't, but but I, I couldn't I couldn't 
make the decision being like, oh yeah, it's fine. I've made it. And I'm just going to get to publish whatever I want for the rest of my life. You know, it, it unfortunately doesn't work like that. Well, and I think maybe you always have to have an edge around it, right? Where right. Y- you can never take things for granted, as you've, you've said. As soon as you do, it all goes to hell. It, it can, definitely. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I've had lots of ups and downs in my writing career. I've been dropped by publishers and, and you know, so I, I think a lot of, there's a lot of discussion out there about getting your first book deal and that not that many people talk about sort of the career as an author and the ups and downs about that. And so, you know, publishing a book is great and a huge achievement, but getting to keep publishing in some ways can be more of an achievement and more difficult because if a book doesn't do well, mm-hmm you know, somebody might not take a risk on you again and people have to reinvent themselves. And so it's, um, the other thing I wanted to do when I was a teenager was be an actress. And um, I, I do remember actively making the decision not to pursue that because it was, I could be the best actress in the world, but because I was five pounds too heavy or I didn't look the way they, you know, there's so many things you can't control in that business. And it's not just about the work and aptitude. So I didn't want to be in a situation where I couldn't control, (laughs) you know, if I succeeded or not. And then ironically, I ended up there anyway, in a different way, but, but I still ended up there. So, But what you just said is, is, is like shocking to me. The part about a publisher drops you. Right. Because 66 pages away from finishing this incredible thing, which is keeping me up at night with a flashlight on my phone and trying to make sure that I'm not disturbing my husband and, and reading this beautiful piece, how the hell would anybody drop you? You're brilliant. So could, could we talk? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to name names or anything, but like what happens? I would think that your first book. I mean, it's mostly about book sales. Honestly, oh. it's not, um, and, and different things happen. I, you know, am I, am my American publisher, the person who acquired me left. And so I was inherited by somebody else okay. and, uh, my first American publisher and my books had done okay. They hadn't set the world on fire, but you know, tastes differ. And look, we all can see books on the bestseller list that we've hated, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not, you know, mm-hmm. so those combination of factors, you know, I think is what led to that decision and, and and different publishers, it's been different reasons, but the common denominator, I think, besides it being me, um, is, is, is just, you know, you can't predict what books are going to do well or, or not. And, and, um, they are in business and, you know, they, they want to sell books and, um, you know, that definitely happens and it, it happens more often than you think, um, you know, most people, you get a two-book deal to start off with, and then it just depends how you did on those books if you get another deal. Or, you know, you might write a book that just completely excites everyone, and, and you'll get a, a deal even if you had b- bad book sales. But um, I think a lot of people think it's says people stopped writing, but a lot of the time, actually, is that people just don't have the opportunity to do it anymore. Wow. Um, and it's, you know, it's not something that's necessarily always talked about, but I know lots and lots of writers who haven't been able to publish again right. after a couple of books. Wow. Okay. Well, this is all a huge education for me because I didn't know. And so this is going to sound like a terrible question, and I'm not really sure how to phrase it, but how many times have you been <laughs> dumped? I mean, I'm just uh, going to put it out there. I'm, yeah, I'm not trying think, to... I mean, between different countries, uh, three. And then and then what do you do? You, you kind of put your portfolio... Cry. <laughs> <laughs> 
first we cry. We cry, cry with your agent. Um, yeah, cry. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's part of um, what you have to do and why you have to have a thick skin in this business um, because you could just be like, okay, that's it, I guess. Or you can roll up your sleeves and go out into the cruel world of try book again. submissions and, and try again. Which is what I've done each time. So, <laughs> it, who who goes out and knocks on the doors? I'm. It, it's uh, my my agent does that. Okay, that's that's her job. <laughs> you have an agent in the United States and an agent in Canada. No, it's this, it's the same agent. Okay, and, yeah. So they have that individual has relationships across the border and all good things. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Um. So, when you were young, you wrote poetry. Yeah. In French or in English? I didn't ask you if you were... Oh, no, in English. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm English. I mean, I'm bilingual in French, but I, I don't think or write in French. Okay. Like, I mean, I can write French, but I don't write artistically in French. And your and your poetry was something you did for yourself, something you shared, something you showed at school, or just a creative escape? A combination, I think. I actually I remember writing my 11th grade English exam as a poem. I was, I did get an honorable mention in Books in Canada poetry competition a million, a million, million years ago. Fabulous. Uh, and I did submit poems. I never, you know, to various magazines and got rejected. So you started at this early. So the thick skin started when you were young. <laughs> I guess, yeah. yeah. The idea for the for the first book, you were at law school and you had an idea about four law students who were planning the perfect murder. That wasn't my first book, but it's my book called The Murder Game. But it's probably the first book idea that I had that I actually executed. Okay. That was years later. Mm -hmm. And was it you and three girlfriends at a bar in Montreal that were thinking, okay, let's play a game? (laughs) Or how? how I I literally was sitting in in my criminal law class, just in crim law class, and thinking we could probably plan a perfect murder. Just take a murder that somebody didn't get away with and fix the things that were <laughs> what you're <laughs> learning. Yeah. It, which, you know? yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, then there are, you know, many years later as this, uh, she obviously didn't take my idea, but you know, Shonda Rhimes has this show, how to get away with murder. Yeah. Right. Set at law school. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> like, our brains work the same. Exactly. There, um, there's a need for this kind of thing out there in the big world. Absolutely. I guess, I guess. So at least in fiction. Your books, um, Catherine, have been described as domestic suspense. Right. Is it is that a, a term that you like or don't like? Or is it accurate? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think this book probably is more domestic suspense. Domestic suspense really started with, you know, Gone Girl and the Canadian book. Um, oh, what was it called? It was a huge success. Was it The Silent Wife? Is that it? Oh. Anyway. I did read that book. Okay. And yeah. also The Girl on the Train. Was The Girl on the Train one? Of- yeah, The Girl on the Train also. So so domestic suspense, I think, is a suspense book that centers around domestic relationships. Okay. You know, husband and wife, ex-husband and wife. And and I think it categorized the genre where it was, a, a you know, women writers writing suspense thrillers, but not like male writers wrote them, right? Not about the CIA or explosions or external threats, but internal threats. Interesting. And I think a lot of women who wrote those books, and myself included, came out of what they call women's fiction. Mm. So just more contemporary fiction 
and then sort of married the two genres. And so there's lots of names. It's domestic noir, or domestic suspense, thriller, suspense. You know, there's a lot of names for it. Um, but in general, my suspense thrillers haven't really, I don't think, been so domestic. But but this one is closer to that because, you know, there is an ex, there is a bad ex-husband <laughs> who, may or, who may or may not have done it. <laughs> who happens to be... A litigation lawyer. Oh, he does. It's true. <laughs> I'm like, I, I had you at that, or I, you had me at hello on that. I'm like, the bad ex-husband oh, is a litigation lawyer. I'm like, okay, this is close to home. <laughs> you, you can, you can, you can buy right into that story. I'm like, I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, what's next for you, Catherine, in terms of, I mean, I don't know about, you know, I'm not talking like life plan, but you're clearly saying I am not going to be one of those dudes at 70 who's still going into the office and some curmudgeon <laughs> guy up there in the in, right. in the white office tower. Um, yeah. What, what do you see yourself doing? I mean, maybe presuming that the writing can still continue and that the publishers are still loving you. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing when I'm in my 60s, but um, for now I'm writing full time. And, and uh, when travel is possible again, um, that's, you know, I want to be traveling for sure. And uh, I don't know, we'll see. You know, it's it's part of the adventure is having more choices um, to sort of do and go where I want to, you know, when I when I when I can. <laughs> That's the, the cruel joke of the thing. Well, no, exactly. Exactly. But I understand that you, some of your books have been optioned for development into television. Have, mm-hmm. Has that has that happened? Has, is there something bubbling up around a television series show yeah. something? So three of them have been optioned in the last couple of years. Um, I'll Never Tell is, I think, the most advanced. I've, I've seen a script. Right. And, um, you know, they're in the process of next steps, getting a director, trying to get a TV channel on board. So it, it may or may not happen. You know, I mean, it's it, it's it's amazing to even be optioned by yeah. something, you know, like Paramount or MGM or the two companies. And, um, and you know, if it actually gets made, that will be another whole <laughs> very different thing. So, and do you, But do you and your agent participate in this or is this just something it takes on a life of itself sort of it thing? Definitely, I mean, I have producer credit or executive producer credit, but it definitely takes on a life of its own. It's out of my hands. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and that's where it should be because, you know, there are other people that's their expertise at getting these things made. Um, and, you know, I'll be as involved as they want me to be, mm-hmm. as they let me be. But, yeah. And do you do you ever think about writing for television? Yeah, definitely. I have scripts that I've written and worked on. And and did they did they see the light of day or it's one of those? No, no nothing's seen the light of day yet. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe. Maybe someday soon. And I, I ask that just because you know, talked about being an actress. So does that take right. you a little closer to where you maybe wanted to start off in, in your early years? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm just a huge fan of good writing. And there's, in the last 10 years, there's been such amazing TV writing, honestly. And I think in a lot of ways, it's where a lot of the really good storytelling and writing is happening yeah. right now. Um, I also like the idea of the collaborative experience to be in a writer's room, to not be alone at my desk. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just really a different 
energy. And, and so I, I like that as well. And, and just to tell different stories, you know, there's not everything fits into the narrative structure of a novel, excuse me, and not, not everything um, fits into the genre that I write in either. Right, of course. But I get, I, you know, other ideas that I think are interesting and worth pursuing, so. Fantastic. And so what do you consider to be interesting in the world of television? I mean, are you binging something cool on Netflix that we could discuss? Because certainly there's been a whole lot of that going on during the pandemic. I think I broke Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> um, I wonder myself that same thing. Like, oh, yeah. am I ever getting my money's worth? <laughs> the end of Netflix. Um, I think I mentioned The Vow before. Yes. Um, I, I was definitely obsessed with The Vow, and I have long been obsessed with cults, so I've watched every documentary that there is about cults. I'm re-watching um, the Leah Remini show about Scientology. Neat. Um and, uh, and, yeah, and The Vow, I mean, I did a deep dive on that. I read uh, Sarah Edmondson's book. I read Catherine Oxenberg's book. Um, I even tweeted with them a little bit. Neat. Uh, which was which was fun. Um yeah. Oh, Ted Lasso. I really enjoyed Ted Lasso. Okay. I high I highly recommend Ted Lasso. Um Rebecca, who's our executive producer for Breaking Brave, is nuts about Ted Lasso. So you guys have got that in common. What are you yeah. it, we get away from watching anything what are you reading or is 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 reading like i do this for a living so maybe i don't want to do this as a pastime <laughs> no no I, I i've always been a voracious reader my whole life and and uh there was a brief moment after i had to edit my first book where i picked up a book and i started editing it in my mind and i was like oh my god has this ruined oh. reading for me because i will really be upset but I, I got past that. Okay, good. Um, Thankfully. Yes. Yeah, no, no. Thank goodness. You know, I had a lot of trouble reading for a long time during the pandemic. I was just reading a lot of, and I, I mean, it was because of the U.S. election and a whole bunch of yeah. other things. So I was, I was always reading, but I was reading a lot of news and, and nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and then this winter, I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. I haven't read a novel in months. I, I have to get back to it. So I, I kind of assigned it to myself, like homework, which was that I had to read 10% of a book every day. Okay. And because on Kindle, I, re I read most of my stuff. I was about Kindle to ask you, are you, are you a hard yeah. copy person? Are you a hardcover person or are you an electronic person? I, I mostly read electronically now okay. um, just for convenience. And again, because I'm usually reading at night in bed, so I don't have to have the flashlight next to my <laughs> husband. I can just have my iPad. But um, so I started saying on, on a Kindle, it's easy because it'll tell you what percentage you've read. Yes. I'm just going to read 10%. Right. And if I do that, I'll finish a book in 10 days. And and I'm glad that I did that because I've, I've actually gotten back to reading and I've probably read 12 or 15 books in, since then. So um, a couple that I really liked, um, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue mm. by V.E. Schwab, which was great. Um, and then uh, kind of a similar book in some ways, um, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Interesting. I also really enjoyed what else? Right now I'm reading The Banker's Wife um, by Christina Alger. I read a book called Do No Harm by Christina McDonald. Excellent. And I, I haven't, I mean, I'm a huge reader and it's interesting. I'm going to tread back to the pandemic. What is that thing? I, I The friends that I have that, that on social media have said exactly the same thing. I mean, 
To me, bliss is... Brain fog. (laughs) Yeah, just can't. I mean, to me, bliss was going to an airport to get on a plane to, to, to work, but just to get on a plane to go anywhere going to the bookstore and paying a stupid amount of money for a brand new book because at the bookstore <laughs> right. in the airport is always way too stupid. Um, and and coveting this thing with me and taking it with me and right. curling up in my seat and consuming it on a plane. Pandemic hits, can't read. Can't. And I don't know what it is. Is it Was it we all had to be on high alert? We didn't feel we could relax enough to be able to read a book? I don't know. Com- honestly, I think it's a combination of things. I think our routines were disrupted. Yeah, yeah. You know, massively. Yeah. And yeah, you know, heightened fear and then all this other stuff going on at the same time, you know, that ability to sort of let go and to dive into somebody else's life or story um, just became harder. Um, And, and, you know, writing too. Like, thankfully, I found my way out of that sooner than the reading. But I didn't write anything really for three or four months. Wow. I, I turned in Six Weeks to Live at the beginning of March 2020. Is that right? So I was like, okay, phew, thank God. Right. <laughs> you know? And so I had to do edits on it, but the editing is very different work than, you know, having to be originally creative. Yeah. And, and I was late getting to my next book. Just when you're on a book of your schedule, there's kind of like there's a timing involved, yeah, you know, I'm like sure. when you should start to 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 finish. And so I yeah, I had to sort of sit myself down. I retired like I wrapped up my law practice, but you know, I rented a cottage with a friend for a week and and when I got back, I was like, okay. <laughs> this is now my full-time job and I need to treat it like it, it is. And um so I I you know, I got the the novel done, but yeah, you know, it comes back to I think a little bit we were talking about before, it's just creativity it's connected to certain things. Uh-huh. And, you know, I know a lot of writers who are totally de- derailed by Trump's election for a long time. Is that right? Well, particularly when you're writing full time, you know, small things can take up a lot of energy and space. Not that Trump was a small thing. <laughs> no, but, um, but I would but think, was oh, well, just put yeah. it over there on a shelf, so to speak. And it, y- but yeah, yet, think, no. But no, no, no. I mean, I was grateful that I had a trial. And so I had to disconnect from that and just throw myself into the trial. And then that broke the cycle for me. Not that, I mean, for sure, 2016, 2020, I consumed more news in those four years than I had in the the rest of, you know, the rest of my life. But I, you know, I had a different outlet so that I could disconnect and I I could learn lessons from that too, which is like, I had to cut myself off, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's just some days you can't, like the days of the ca- the day of the Capitol riot. I was just like yeah. starting seeing all these tweets, and I'm like, okay, I need to go January sixth. I have an office yeah. out of the house. Yeah, I need to go home and watch this on television. And then I probably spent the next three days in front of my TV. Exactly. But, but then it was like, okay, now I need to go back to it, to turn it off, and, and go back to work. Yeah. So, Catherine, what does a day? It, I mean, I guess we're gonna we're gonna put this in a pandemic situation. But what does a day sure. in your life look like now? Do you get up early in the morning and run, or do you do it at the end of the day, or is there a protein shake involved, or where do you go <laughs> in your house to do your now full time job to be a writer? What just generally? Yeah. What does so that I look like? So I actually got a I got a um, an office out of the house. Oh, good. Um, it's sort of in a you know a, a work share, but it's a private office okay. in a work share space, literally five minute walk from my house. But I was just like, I, my house is starting to feel like a cell. So, Mm -hmm. um, so I did that for myself. 
And so a typical day would be get up, have breakfast, go to my co-working space and write in the morning. And then I come home for lunch. Okay. And then I will exercise after lunch. Okay. And then I may or may not do more writing after that, depending on... It's hard for me to to write in my novel more than two or three hours a day. Mm-hmm. It's just I've sort of gotten the words out for that day into the book. Um, but if I'm working on another project, then, you know, I'll do that in the afternoon. So it's a lot less busy than it used to be. <laughs> get way less Prepping done. for a trial on top of all that. Yeah, exactly. Sure, sure. Um do you dream about it? Does it come up in your dreams? I mean, your storylines of six weeks to live, was there something that that one was intensely started off to be intensely personal? And Yeah. No, I don't tend to dream about uh, my books. Okay. Um, it's I am more like, you know, if I'm running or in a shower or just when I'm not writing, I'm thinking about it and thoughts will come to me. Mm-hmm. About like, oh, yeah, this is where tomorrow's chapter should go. But no, I'm not one of those like dream dream writers. Not not to date anyway. Did you have a favorite? I mean, I know, I think you were a big Harry Potter fan when you were a kid. But did you have a favorite author yeah. when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, as a kid, um, you know, I loved the Little House on the Prairie books. Oh, nice. Um, and Anna Green Gables. I mean, I have red hair and green eyes, and I'm Canadian, so <laughs> you know, and. <I'm- laughs> I love those books. I loved The Little Princess and, mm. and The Secret Garden by Frances Huston Burnett. Mm. Uh, I loved a book called Ballet Shoes, which I don't even think is in print anymore. The Borrowers. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, I mean, I read Sweet Valley High and, you know, Flowers in the Attic, which I don't even know how they let those books near children. Not the Sweet Valley High books, but the There's, Flowers in the Attic and yeah. My Sweet Audrina. When I think about the storylines, they're so horrible. I just like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I was 12 when I was reading that. Like, Mom, what were you doing? <laughs> Why did you let that into my hands? You know? I'm going to ask you just a couple more things, and I should let you go. Um What's the most difficult part for you for the artistic process? What do you struggle with the most? Uh, I think for me, it's always the the middle of a book. Is it? Um, yeah. The first 10, 20,000 words is that's where you're creating the world and discovering the characters. And uh, that always goes quickly. And then in the end, I, I'm just wrapping up everything that I've uh-huh. done. So that also goes quickly. In the middle of the book is really the work. Because it's very easy for a book to go off the rails or become boring. We all put down books after 100 pages, right? It's like, oh, where's this going? Yeah. You know, know, there's a a phrase called the soggy middle, and that can happen. So that, to me, is where the work of Mm. writing really is. And then I think more overall, um, you know, the publishing process, by the time the finished copy of the book is out into the world, now, I haven't only written the book, right? I've read it minimum 10 times. Mm-hmm. And so it's boring to me. Yeah. I know everything that's going to happen. Yeah. There are no surprises. <laughs> I never turn the page and go, oh, that was a clever twist. <laughs> you know? um, and and so I think every writer goes to this like, oh, this thing sucks. It's so boring. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, so I've had to develop different skills to figure out where, like, is it actually a problem with a book or it's just because I've read this before? Yeah. And 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 so when I'm editing, I, I don't do more than 25 pages in a day, for example, because I know I stop paying attention okay. after that. I'm just not doing my job properly. Um, and I know when 
something needs work because that 25 pages has taken me 10 times longer than Mm -hmm. normal, it's because something is going on in that section. It's just not reading as smoothly as it should or or whatever. So, um, so, so that can be a challenge also. It's like finding the focus and energy to read your own book for the upteenth time. And I've never thought of that. It's to correct things that no one would even notice if I didn't correct, but I've overused a word on this page or I've used that expression before, you know. And so last question before we wrap it up, Catherine, what, what's the process? I mean, let's use six weeks to live as an example. How, How many chunks are you sending? Is it like, okay, here's a chapter goes to my editor comes back or so how does that all work? In that case, it was, I, I think I did it, I'm trying to think, with six weeks. See, now I've written a whole other book since then. Okay. And I, Why don't we talk about the next book, and that'll be simpler. So okay, if, sure. So next year's book, <laughs> which is called Please Join Us, <gasps> and is about a woman who's invited to a women's networking organization that turned sinister. And the main character's a lawyer. Oh, good. So that I did in thirds. So I wrote the first third, sent that to my editors, wrote the next thirds, and made changes to the first third, sent that to my editors, and then sent them the final product. Okay. And that is normally how I work, say, with my sister as a beta reader mm-hmm. or something, is I'll work in thirds, I'll write that first third, then I'll send it, get comments, rework it, then write the next third, okay. and then write the last third. And so the first two-thirds of the book have been worked more than the last third. But but again, by then, it's not really any decisions to make. It's just completing the tasks yes, I understand. in the last in the last third. And is it still your passion? <laughs> I mean... I still have stories in my head that oh, will God. not leave me alone unless I write them down. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. So, Catherine, how can we support you in what you're doing, and how can we connect? So anybody listening to Breaking Brave right now, how can they support you? How can they find you? How can they follow you? Just, this is the brazen, hey, wh- where are all your socials? <laughs> Give it to me now, please. Well, the easiest way to support authors is to, of course, buy our books. Yes. And um, so please buy Six Weeks to Live. It's available everywhere. If you're in Ontario on lockdown, I'm sorry. But, um, you know, Indigo and your local indies are doing curbside pickup. And, you know, please support them. Yes. If you want a physical copy. And, of course, it's available digitally and in audiobook. Um, and on social, you can find me on Twitter, C-E-McKenzie1. That's if you want to hear my tweet. There's less tweets than about American politics now than there used to be. <laughs> but <laughs> Some books, a lot of politics. Um, Instagram, uh, Catherine McKenzie Author. And Facebook, Catherine McKenzie Author. And my website is CatherineMcKenzie.com. That's Catherine with the C and McKenzie no A. I was just about to say that. <laughs> my parents used to joke, that if I was a boy, they were going to call me William Lyon Mackenzie King Mackenzie, which has got to be the most Canadian joke ever, right? Yeah. So thank God you weren't a boy. <laughs> well, you know what? My brother didn't get named that. Okay. So, so they were just joking. They were just joking. But Awesome. Well, Catherine, it has been a delight. And I have to race off now because I have 66 more pages of your book that I've got to finish. All right. And we didn't do any spoiler things. So thank you for staying away from that. But... You are brilliant, Thank and you. it has been a delight. And and I hope one day we will be able to get together in Montreal and actually have that coffee in person, because it would be so nice to that meet you in nice. person. That would be nice. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, marylandbarefoot.com. You can also find me 
at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.